spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences will often show us how much more we have in common. I'm Condace Presley. Title IX of the Education Amendment of 1972 provides this, that no person shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied benefits, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. This is a law, and that was truly legalese that you just heard, enacted 50 years ago. It helped pave the way for equality in women's athletics. My guest today is author Sherry Boschert. Did I pronounce that right, Dr. Boschert? Yes, that's fine. She is an award-winning journalist and the author of 37 Words, Title IX, and 50 Years of Fighting Sex Discrimination. Sherry Boschert, welcome to Perspectives. Well, thank you. Tell me about the story of 37 Words. Yeah, like you said, those 37 words do sound like legalese, but as the civil rights movement progressed through the 1960s and into the 70s, and as the what they call the second wave women's movement was catching fire in the late 60s and 70s, the idea came forth that, you know, if you as a school want federal funding or any government money that comes from everyone, you have to offer, offer education to everyone. It has to be fair and equal. And that launched, and then that was happening all over. It was happening in workplaces. Uh, it was happening in lots of legal senses. Um, and what happened was one of the three main characters in my book, Bernice Sandler, was earning a doctorate degree in education. And in her department at the University of Maryland, there were seven openings for tenure track positions, and she couldn't even get an interview. So she went and sat down in the office of a colleague, uh, a man, and she said, well, why can't I even get an interview? I'm a good teacher. And he said, let's face it, you come on too strong for a woman. And she went home and she cried. She believed him at first. She never should have raised her hand in class or spoken up in seminar. But this was an example of women trying to get into the workplace. This just happened to be an education. And um, she knew in her heart it wasn't fair or equal, but could it possibly be legal? And one thing led to another, uh, and that caught the eye of uh, Representative Edith Green of Oregon, who called the first congressional hearings about sex discrimina discrimination in education, which eventually led us to Title IX. So if, at first it was about jobs, then very quickly became about sports, and also very quickly became about sexual harassment. But it covers lots of other things, pregnant students, um, vocational education, lots of things. What made you want to write this book beyond the fact that we're 50 years into Title IX being law? Right. Yeah. I mean, we're 50 years in and there's still a long way to go towards equality. So that alone would be reason enough. But for me personally, I had 
written one previous book in 2006 about electric vehicles, a totally different topic. <laughs> and I was kind of itching to write another book. I was still a reporter, um, but I, I was in a little bit of a rut. And I thought, well, what inspires me? What do I want to write about? And at the time, Title IX, this was in 20, late 2014, Title IX was starting to be in the headlines a lot. Now, someone of my generation, I'm in my 60s, we know it as the law that got girls into sports. When I was in high school, there were no girls teams. I had no access to athletics. Uh, but Title IX gave that to every girl and college-age woman in America. Um, but in 2014, the headlines started to be filled with things about sexual harassment and especially sexual assault on campus. And I thought, huh, what's that about? And so the more I started to look into Title IX and the more I looked, the more I learned what a strong and broad and important legal tool this is. And I figured if I don't know it, there's lots of other people who don't. And in, in fact, polls show that 50% of Americans have never heard of Title IX. And yet it's one of the most important civil rights laws that we have today. How would you describe our progress 50 years in? Um, well, in, in many aspects, I mean, in terms of um, employment, which is what started it all, um, women are, um, well, for one thing, women are a majority of college students now, which happened pretty quickly. It happened by 1979. Uh, among the faculty, um, women are pretty much on par, um, but they are still relegated to the lower ranks uh, and paid less than the men. Um, in the graduate schools, which is what Bernice Sandler was in, uh, women didn't become a majority of law students until 2016, or a majority of medical students until 2017. And women are a majority of the population at large. Uh, so there's that. In athletics, um, again, we have just, I want to say 10 times more women, 10 or 11 times more girls playing in high school and in college. Um, but as we've seen, you know, at the NCAA tournament, what was it in 2021, when someone tweeted a picture of, you know, the women's weight room, and it was a couple of dumbbells, whereas the men had this huge gym, you know, these, these cultural attitudes die hard. And, um, you know, the, the proportion of women playing in college at most colleges still lags behind their proportion of students. Uh, the number of, you know, before Title IX, almost all women's teams, the few that there were, were coached by women. But once it became clear Title IX was not going away, the NCAA kind of took over and men moved into the coaching jobs for women's teams. And almost any college you look at, you'll see, you know, three times as many men coaches hired as women. You can all find that very easily, by the way, online. There was a great law passed in the 1990s by two Black Congresswomen um, called the Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act, the EADA. So every college is required every year to report its statistics. How many men and women were playing on your college team? How many coaches do you hire? What sex are they? What do you pay them? And how much money do you spend overall on athletics, men's and, and women's? Uh, and it gets very lopsided very quickly, partly because the struggles of the 1970s to create the regulations for Title IX it didn't end up saying things have to be equal. Uh, the football coaches and the men's athletic coaches fought back against that. They, they said, oh, you know, well, football 
uh, uniform costs more than a swimsuit. Okay, that's legitimate. But they didn't set any real hard and fast monetary number. And so today, legally, colleges are allowed to spend a lot more on men's sports than on women's. I, I just spoke recently at Georgia Tech, and they do a really good job of having the proportion of athletes mirror the proportion of undergraduates. But like everywhere else, they have mostly men's coaches, coaching both men's and women's teams. And for instance, among the head coaches, on average, they pay the coaches of women's teams, whether those coaches are men or women. If you're coaching a women's team, you get paid 28% of what they pay the coaches of men's teams. In what ways might that law be made stronger and what would it take to make that case? Yeah, well, here's where I hope my book can contribute because knowing the history can help us understand the present and maybe figure out some better way forward. In the 1970s, you know, when you pass a civil rights law, there's three steps. You pass the law and then you have to write the implementing regulations and then you have to enforce those regulations. So step one with Title IX was getting it passed in 1972. It took three years of bickering before they passed the regulations in 1975. But still, coaches and schools said, we don't know what you're talking about. What, what do you want us to do? Spell it out for us. And so there were several more years of fighting and bickering. And meanwhile, uh, football coaches and men's athletic directors enlisted allies in Congress to try and pass bill after bill to weaken Title IX or get rid of it or at least exempt football. Uh, and women's advocates played whack-a-mole throughout the 1970s, just beating down one bill after another. Well, finally, in 1979, the Office for Civil Rights released uh, another more detailed set of guidelines about how to comply in athletics. What do you do? And during that whole debate about what that should say, we came very close to the Office for Civil Rights saying, just split the money equally, okay? Give half the money for the from the budget to the men's sports and half to the women's. We would be living in a different world today if that had been the case. But they beat that back. That did not happen. And instead, they came up with what they call the three-prong rule or the three-part test. Uh, and it says, you know, if you do these things, we'll consider you to be in compliance with Title IX. And you only have to do one of the three. One is, as we said, that you have proportional athletes by sex to the, the undergraduates. A lot of places still don't. You'd be surprised. So another step that you could take uh, would be to say, um, well, we're meeting the demand for sports. Um, you know, there's people don't really want to play and, you know, you have to prove that though. You have to survey your students, et cetera. Um, and they, they delineated ways you can do that. You can't just send out an email and if no one responds, say, eh, they're not interested. No, that doesn't work. Um, and Thirdly, you have to have a, a history of ongoing progress. So for instance, if you cut women's teams, you've lost that option in the three-part test because you don't have a history of ongoing process. You're not still trying. So if you meet one of those three, you have a history of ongoing process or you have proportional uh, participation according to the sex in undergraduates, or you can show that you've really met all the demand there is then you're in compliance. It's, it's a lot more complicated, right, than saying give half the budget to men and half to women. 
what do you make of the argument that some men's sports, specifically football and basketball, if we're talking about college, generate more revenue than perhaps the women's basketball program or another, the women's tennis program or another women's program at a college or university? And at most colleges and universities, they do generate more revenue. But those revenue-generating sports, they also generate higher costs. And so the vast majority of football programs, for instance, they run in the red. They lose money. They're not making money. This has been looked at again and again, and I cite the research in my book. It's a myth, actually, that you know, football income pays for all the other athletics at a university. There's maybe a handful of large uh, universities where that's the case, and mostly it's not. But really, I want to go back to, you know, what is Title IX? It's not a business. We're talking about education, right? So what is it about an undergraduate student or a high school student playing football that is more educational to them than a young woman or girl playing basketball or softball? What are they learning from that experience? I think you're going to find it's an equally educational experience. So why should we spend 10 times more money on men when the girls um, don't have the kinds of resources? You know, there's one of the guys in my book, he's a minor character, but Herb Dempsey up in Washington State, as his retirement project, uh, he founded, you know, Old Guys for Title IX. And what he does is he uses Google Earth and he flies over high schools. And if the baseball team is playing on a really nice groomed field with lights and dugouts and the girls softball team is playing in a swamp, boom, he writes them and says, you're not complying with Title IX, let's talk. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. So this is education, it's not a business. Um, So I think we need to look at where are our priorities and there's probably, this is a whole different uh, discussion we could spend a whole show on, but there's probably a case to be made that in uh, college, especially, maybe athletics shouldn't be part of education anymore. Maybe it is more of a business. We're the only country in the world that does it this way. Everyone else has a club sports model that separates athletics and education. But that's that's another topic <laughs> to debate. I wanted to ask you, and you just mentioned it, talk to us about some of, your book is filled with stories. Talk to us about some of the other characters in 37 Words. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, you know, because Really, I had to find a way to condense 50 years of history into a book that would keep the reader turning the page, right? I mean, I can dump all the statistics and facts and figures and studies at you that I want, but if you're not going to read the book, you're not going to get it. Right. So, yeah. So I focused first on Bernice Sandler, who was known as the godmother of Title IX. Her life intersected with Title IX for almost all of these past 50 years. She died two years ago at the age of 90. But then secondly... Uh, I focus on Diane Milutinovich, who was an athletics administrator at Fresno State University. Okay. And uh, I loved that I got to connect with her because she still is involved with Title IX to this day. And she started in the 1970s. But by telling this story at Fresno State, I got to look at another slice of life because a lot of books written about Title IX focus on the elite East Coast universities or the Washington DC halls of power. Fresno State was a rural, um, smaller state school uh, with a much more ethnically diverse population and socioeconomically diverse population. And I got to show how Title IX played out there. 
Third is Pamela Price, who I will say just won election as the new district attorney of Alameda County in the San Francisco Bay Area. But back then, she was a young undergraduate student at Yale, a black woman, and she was propositioned by a professor who offered her a good grade if she slept with him. Okay. Now, this was 1977. This was she and five white female students and one gay male professor sued Yale under Title IX. It was the first lawsuit for sexual harassment, which was a brand new term back then. It was only starting to be widely used that year. And they helped the cause by basically getting a judge to say, yeah, you're right. Title IX covers sexual harassment. You can't expect someone to get an equal education if they're being sexually harassed. Now, the judge also threw out all of the other plaintiffs on technicalities except Pamela Price. And another judge then reframed her case to say it was just, you know, this young black woman trying to prove that this white male professor had sexually harassed her. She lost the case, as you might imagine, but because we had that ruling that Title IX applies, it moved the movement against sexual violence forward. Um, she too uh, had a long career that intersected with Title IX. She became a lawyer. Now she's a DA. So those three people tell a story of Title IX. And in the last few chapters, I do feature some of the younger activists from the past decade who really uh, put in the headlines the issue of sexual assault. What issues or challenges lie in the future of Title IX and its execution as the law of the land? That's a very good question. You know, when I looked at where has Title IX been a success, how did we get here, where is it not working as well? The, the theme is we need to deal with intersectional discrimination. That's when. That? Yeah, that's when you, someone faces more than one potential type of discrimination. It could be a young woman of color. If she's harassed, is she harassed because she's a woman or because she's a person of color? If you have um, a male student with a disability that makes his mannerism seem kind of effeminate, is he being harassed because of the effeminate presentation or because he's disabled? Um, if someone wants to harass me, is it because I'm a woman or because I'm a lesbian? You can't really separate those things. And yet, under the laws today, they are separated. Title IX initially, when it was proposed, was supposed to simply amend Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title VI covers broad swaths of society, not just education. And it says you cannot discriminate based on race, color, or national origin. And they were simply going to add the word sex. You can't discriminate on the basis of sex. For a number of reasons, that didn't happen. I have a whole chapter devoted to all the machinations in Congress that led to that not happening. And instead, we got Title IX as a separate standalone law, just in education. And that set a pattern. Subsequent civil rights laws, Section 504 on disability the following year, the Age Discrimination Act in 1975, they also became separate laws, all of them using the first. 37 words of Title VI. They use the same wording. But because they're all separate, often in colleges today, if you're, let's say, a, a young woman of color and you're being harassed or discriminated, discriminated against in some way, you have to decide, do I go to this office that deals with the racial discrimination or do I go to that office that deals with the sex discrimination? That's an impossible choice for people to make. So we need to 
somehow come together and deal with the dignity of the person as a whole. Um, I'm glad to say that there is a bill before Congress right now that has passed the House that has been stalled in the Senate called the Equality Act, which would do exactly what Title IX initially tried to do, which is add the word sex and gender to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. So that's, that is one main way that we need to move forward on this, because if we don't, Title IX will never fully be a success. Where does the debate over gender identity figure into all of this? Yeah, you know, Title IX, every generation uh, that has come to know Title IX has applied it to their level of knowledge, which of course evolves over time. We know a lot more about, you know, uh, gay, straight, sexual orientation, transgender, non-binary, intersex students, you know, um, than we used to. We know a lot more about that now in the same way that we know more about intersectional discrimination now than we used to. Uh, and obviously one of the big issues uh, in the headlines, and especially since it's an election year that some politicians jumped on, is what about transgender athletes? Should they be allowed to participate in women's athletics, women's athletics especially? No one's really arguing about transgender men participating. And again, I would point people to the history in my book for potential solutions going forward. There's not going to be one perfect answer, just like there wasn't in the 1970s when they were debating, okay, you're saying don't discriminate. What does that mean? What does that look like? It was not a given that we would have men's and women's sports. That was just one potential way to uh, organize it. Other things that were kicked around were, you know, what if we organize sports based on height or weight or other factors? Because the ACLU and the National Organization for Women, both of whom came out of the civil rights movement, felt very strongly that separate is never equal. And so if you're gonna separate women and men, somehow that's not gonna be equal. And, and they were right about that. Um, but what if we use these other factors? Or what if we use the, a sort of Olympic model where men and women for each college compete and you add up the scores and whichever college has the highest score, they're the winner of the meet. That's an incentive to invest equally in your men's and women's teams because their, their scores count equally. So the same thing is happening with transgender um, issues. We have to figure out what's the fairest way and keep in mind, again, go back to the fact that this is about education. If we as a society feel that athletics is an important part of education, it needs to be accessible to all students. You can't just discriminate and say, well, that kind of person can't participate. So this is going to play out. But I, you know, personally, I feel like for now, let them play. But in the long run, Maybe we need to reevaluate how athletics is organized or even a part of higher education. What is it that you're wanting readers to take away from this book at this moment in American history? Well, that this is a movement. There's a number of movements. I mean, I talked about the people in my book. Uh, you know, I have three main characters, but it has a cast of millions, hundreds of millions, actually. And each of us is part of that because Title IX has touched our lives, whether we know it or not. These movements will keep going. These movements are not stopping. And some of these movements are even accelerating. The movement against sexual violence goes back thousands of years. I mean, even in the mid 1800s, um, a former slave, a transgender woman testified before Congress about sexual abuse of slaves. 
Okay, so my book just picks it up in the 1970s, but that movement is continuing. And the past decade of college students saying, we're not gonna put up with sexual assault anymore. This is ruining our education and that's not fair. That's a movement, that's not going back. Um, so whether it's that movement, civil rights movement, women's movement, LGBTQ rights movement, those are the real actors in the book. And I hope people would see that. The book is 37 words, Title IX and 50 Years of Fighting Sex Discrimination. The author is Sherry Boschert, and it would seem, Sherry, that uh, 50 years of fighting uh, leads to 50 more years of fighting and additional education, correct? That's how progress gets made. We've come a long way, but we can see what's ahead of us. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tommy. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program produced with you in mind. If there's a guest or an issue you'd like to hear me explore, I hope you'd let me know. The easiest way to connect with me is on social media. Just slip me a DM or send me a message. Search Condes Presley on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And yeah, I know you're asking, how do you spell Condes? C-O-N-D-A-C-E. And Presley has two S's. That's P-R-E-S-S-L-E-Y. Friends, I appreciate your listening. Be sure to listen again next week at the same time as we explore new perspectives. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.